Good morning again. You know, I don't know if you share this feeling uh, with me, um, but I find that uh, one of the more frustrating things I think that I encounter uh, in my life is when there are things around me or when people around me or, or just projects around me go unfinished or incomplete. Um, and this could, take the, this could take a variety of different forms in our lives. So it could uh, you know, be a, a, a project that has been started and has been left incomplete uh, or a task or a chore that has been left incomplete. Maybe you know, your kids take a shower and then leave all their clothes all over the bathroom floor not speaking from experience, I don't know what that's like, but I've heard that that happens from time to time. Um, you start a home project and then it sits around kind of half done for months and months as just sort of this reminder of this thing that you didn't finish. When things are left incomplete, uh, it leaves us with uh, maybe a variety of different feelings, but it leaves us at best feeling dissatisfied. Um, but or at worst can leave us in danger sometimes, depending upon the level of the project. The hardware store Lowe's understood this idea and turned it into a marketing campaign with this pretty clever uh, billboard that they had put up uh, and obviously putting out the fact there that, hey, if you have unfinished projects, we have things that, that can help you finish those things. But even the news does stories from time to time when homeowners are left high and dry uh, with unfinished projects in their home. And this family's home was left uninhabitable by an unfinished job. So whether this is, you know, a minor frustration in our lives or we encounter something major like this, I think we all have struggles with this in our lives. And we probably all feel somewhat similar to Sheldon in this. Come up with a series of exercises to help with your compulsive need for closure. Well, I take issue with the word compulsive. All I'm saying is we live in a world where closure isn't always an op. <laughs> Shun, okay. <laughs> for the sake of argument, let's say I have a problem. So what would be your plan for addressing it? I'm going to recondition your brain so that the need for completion isn't so overwhelming. By playing tic-tac-toe? Yep, your turn. Oh, Amy. And you wonder why people think neuroscience is nothing but a goofy game for diaper babies. <laughs> tic-tac-toe can only end in win, lose, or draw, none of which will deny me closure, especially since I'm about to win. Well, we didn't finish. Exactly. How does that make you feel? The same way any normal person would. Like I want to peel off my own face and tear it in two and then again and again till I have a handful of Sheldon face confetti. I have to admit it, uh, I think I'm with Sheldon uh, on this one. Uh, if you've never seen that scene before from The Big Bang Theory, she continues on with several more tasks that she does not allow him to finish. Uh, and his frustration grows and grows uh, throughout the day, and it's very funny. Uh, but the truth is, when something is incomplete in our lives, oftentimes 
it's worse than if you really never started it at all. And today, as we continue our conversation about worship, we're going to focus on the reality that um, that worship, the worship that God calls us to, has many different parts to it. And if we lack or if we ignore one aspect of that worship, it can, in some ways, actually be harmful to our spiritual health. And before we get into talking about what complete worship looks like, which we're going to spend some time looking at, I want to spend some time talking about what are the dangers of incomplete worship, when we don't, when we ignore some aspect of the worship that God has called us to. And the first way that I, th- I want us to pay attention to that that incomplete worship can actually be harmful to us is that it contributes to this sort of natural tendency we have, I think as human beings, definitely as Americans, to have a compartmentalized view of our life. Now, there are some ways that we very naturally and we very understandably compartmentalize our lives. Um, you know, I have my work life and I have my home life. And there are ways that I, that I interact with people as part of my job that are very different from ways that I might interact with, you know, my family and my friends. And one very obvious example of this might be, you know, somebody who has the role of a police officer as their job. You know, what is required of them in their job is very different than what would be required of them in their personal life. And if they interacted with people in their personal life the way they interacted with people in their job, it likely would lead to some pretty significant problems in their lives. But when we have an incomplete understanding of worship, we can extend those compartmentalization, that's a hard word to say, compartmentalizations uh, into our faith as well. You know, we say, this is my church life. This is my, this is my, where I worship. And that, but this is my normal life where I do all of the other things in that, and that my worship and my church life is just this small sort of sliver of what I do, but it doesn't really have any bearing on what happens in my life, what I do, the choices I make outside of my times of worship. So when we have an incomplete understanding of worship, we can be, it can really cause us to stray into this compartmentalized uh, view of our faith. The second uh, way that incomplete worship can be harmful to us is that it really indicates a very significant lack of understanding about who God really is. A couple of weeks ago, Gene uh, spoke, and he he was talking about the di- one of the things he spoke about was the difference between praise and worship. Whereas praise being, you know, we could praise many different things. You know, we could praise our children when they perform well, either at school or sports or things like that. We can praise anybody or anything that does something well, something that we are impressed with. But when we talk about worship, he gave us this definition. The art of losing self in adoration of another. When we have an incomplete worship and an incomplete understanding of worship, God isn't something that we lose ourselves in. Several years ago, uh, after we finished a missions trip, a youth missions trip out in Arizona, we took some students to the Grand Canyon. And this is a picture that I actually took of the Grand Canyon from a small plane as we were flying over it. Now, I want to make sure I'm clear before I kind of stray too far into this illustration. In no way am I meaning to imply that the Grand Canyon or anything other than God should be an object of our worship. But when you see the Grand Canyon, you know, on a much, much smaller scale than what we're talking about when we're talking about God, you kind of lose yourself in the awesomeness of it, in what you're seeing. So when I'm seeing the Grand Canyon, 
what I wanted to be doing is, you know, I wanted to see it from just about every possible angle I could. You know, I wanted to be, I wanted to be able to go down inside the canyon and be, and be seeing it from inside the canyon. I wanted to see it at sunrise. I wanted to see it at sunset. I wanted to see it from the air as we had the opportunity to do. And if I lived there, I don't think I could ever really have gotten tired of seeing the Grand Canyon. But here's what I didn't do when we went to the Grand Canyon. What I didn't do is I didn't just walk up to the edge of it and say, huh, interesting. I've seen the Grand Canyon now. I'm going to walk away, and I'm never going to, I'm, I'm not, that, that's the extent of my interest in it. Check the Grand Canyon off my bucket list. I can move on now. But this is sort of oftentimes our attitude that we bring to worship. We can so easily lose ourselves in certain things like natural beauty or a work of art or a movie or a book. But our view of God is such that we have a much harder time losing ourselves in the one who is the author and the source of all the beauty that we see in the world. So worship becomes a task that we check off our list rather than something we pursue because we are just awed by God and who he is. The way David was in the passage that we started off reading this morning in Psalm chapter 8, David wrote that as he surveyed the natural world, he could not believe that human beings were something that God even thought of, much less cared for. In Psalm 8, 3 and 4, he says this, When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. Do you ever just stop and think about that for a moment? Think about the reality that the creator and sustainer of the universe thinks about you individually and cares for you individually. Is there beauty in the world? For sure, there is. But we get to worship the source of all that is beautiful in the world. But possibly the most significant thing we miss when our worship is incomplete is this. We are not giving God what he is due. Remember, the title of this series that we're going through right now is It's All About You. And the you isn't us, the you isn't you, the you is God. Worship is about God. We worship God not because it's enjoyable, but it often is. Not because we want to benefit from it, even though we often do. Not because it's harmful to our spiritual growth if we don't worship God completely, which it is, but because God is worthy of it, and he's due our worship. We could certainly be blessed by worship, and I'm very often blessed by worship, but if we take nothing else away from this entire series that we've been going through, and we're in week four of it right now, and we're going to continue on for a few more weeks, if nothing else, no other fact is sort of drilled into your brains as we walk away, it's this that worship is not for me. It is for God. And that's something that has been repeated and will continue to be repeated. It's in that reading that we do as we start this time. And we're doing that intentionally so that, that we just continually remind ourselves of that fact that worship is not for me, but it is for God. But oftentimes, God in his grace, when I worship him completely, completely does impact me 
through that worship. And I really like how Tim Keller put it in a tweet recently where he said this, you should never go to God because he's useful. Go because he is beautiful. And yet there is nothing more useful than finding God beautiful. If we miss God's beauty and we focus on God's usefulness, we lose both of those things. We give God worship not because of what we get out of it, but because of it's what he deserves. And when we worship God incompletely, we are not giving God what he desires or what he is due. So what are we talking about then? So we're going to spend the rest of our time thinking about what is it that we are talking about when we are talking about complete worship. And to start off this conversation, I want to call our minds back to the definition of worship that is the foundation of what we are teaching throughout this series, and that is this. Worship is our God-honoring, spirit-empowered expressions through word and deed of the inward response of our hearts, minds, and will to an encounter with God's self-revelation. When we think about complete worship, we're thinking about the question of in what contexts are we called to these spirit-empowered expressions that we're speaking of here? And each of these different contexts are part of a much greater whole. And when we lack one or we don't prioritize one, our worship is incomplete. And the first piece of the whole I want us to think about is the fact that worship is individual. It's an individual thing between us and God. So in middle school, many years ago, uh, I decided I was going to try to play an instrument and be in the band. And I started out with this instrument, which is the tenor saxophone. And it became very clear early on to me and my teacher that I would need an instrument with far fewer buttons to push. So uh, he moved me to this instrument, the trombone, which, you know, basically you just need to slide the thing back and forth. I don't need to worry about, like, where my fingers are and everything. Now, I was never what you would call musically gifted when it came to the playing uh, of an instrument. I did not progress very well. And a lot of that probably had to do with the fact that my main motivation for taking an instrument was that it got me out of class once or twice a week to be able to go to the lesson where uh, my, my music teacher would, um, would be teaching the lesson. And also, a lot of that had to do with the fact that I literally never practiced outside of my lesson, literally. So uh, my instrument would stay in the music room all week because that's where I would leave it, and then I would go pick it up and go to my lesson once or twice a week. Um, and not spending any time on my own do, you know, using my instrument, practicing, I never progressed at all. In fact, uh, one time, I, you know, and then eventually one day I showed up to my lesson, I walked in, there, and the teacher sees me walking, and he just looked at me and said, nope, and pointed to the door. <laughs> and, and then I walked in, went back, went back to class, and that was the end of my uh, my band career. Um, it was, it was short-lived. Um, I don't miss it that much, but, uh, uh, but that, that was it. Now, I want to be careful not to stretch this illustration too far, because again, worship is not about what we get out of it. We don't worship God because he's useful. But like learning an instrument, we are not fully participating in our relationship with God if we are not worshiping him on an individual level. And even Jesus modeled this for us. If we take a look at Luke chapter 5, we find Jesus, as his ministry is growing, people are flocking to him. He's doing miracles, he's healing people, and people are seeing him, and he's, he's drawing these huge crowds now everywhere he goes. And um, we find in verse 16 of chapter 5 
that Jesus says this. In the midst of all these crowds, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed at the height of his ministry. Now, Jesus, who is God, if he still needed to prioritize individual fellowship, individual communion, individual worship with his father, if this were something that were necessary for him, how much more is it necessary for you and me to have this individual times of worship? There's also the reality that our relationship with God begins on an individual level. Now, you may have been raised in the church. You might feel like you have been a Christian your entire life. But the reality is your relationship with God didn't start until you made a personal, individual decision to place your faith in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross and say to him, my life is now yours. And if you haven't made that decision, we'd love to speak to you more about that today. You can speak to me. You can speak to a variety of different people here. We'd love to have a conversation with you about that today. But if our worship of God is limited to the one or two times a week that you're inside a church building, not only are you missing out on regular access to the God of the universe, but how much of our lives are we holding back from God who deserves all? So what does it look like to be worshiping God individually? Let's take a look back at our definition of worship again. You know, worship is our God-honoring, spirit-empowered expressions through word and deed of the inward response of our hearts, minds, and will to an encounter with God's self-revelation. So if worship begins with an encounter with God's self-revelation, then individually we need to be encountering the revelation of God. And God's primary source of revelation to us is his word. So our individual worship needs to include a regular encountering of God's word. And that encounter then needs to lead to an individual response of our hearts and minds. God's word is able to lead us to an inward response when we allow his spirit to be at work in us. So we need to approach God's word, God's word prayerfully, asking God to allow his Holy Spirit to guide us and instruct us through his word. And then as we have that response, it shows itself through word and deed. And these would include, include things we communicate to God and about God and his goodness and the way that we live our lives, which we're going to touch on a little bit more in just a few moments. But here's the thing. Many people who actually who call themselves Christ followers actually don't have a problem with this piece of it. Don't have a problem with seeing worship as an individual thing. In fact, our society as a whole is trending more and more toward the individual. In fact, you know, if you wanted to, you could probably, you know, go home and have most of your daily needs met without really ever having to leave your house or interact with another human being. So some people, you know, feel like, feel that way a little bit about worship. You know, yeah, worship is an individual. It's the church that I really have a problem with. Why can't I just worship God on my own? Why do I need the church? And that question brings us to the second piece of complete worship. Worship, yes, worship is individual, but yes, worship is also corporate. Something that we in our 21st century society can often miss about the Bible when we read it is this. At the time the Bible was written, people didn't have Bibles. 
That seems like something that would be very common sense to kind of understand. But when you are, what you are reading was written to people who didn't own Bibles. So what does that mean? That means the majority of the letters and writings you find in the Bible weren't actually written for the original intent of them being read by individuals alone in their homes. Even though we have the ability to do that now, it's great that we all have our own Bibles and it gives us this opportunity to interact with God's word more. But that's not, that just wasn't a possibility back in the time where we're reading. So people didn't have their own Bible. So the assumption of the biblical writers is this, that people would be gathering together as a community of people to interact with God's word. Have a look at some well-known passages of scripture and take note of the assumption of the writers that they are worshiping in a community. First Hebrews 10, 22 through 25 says this. Bear with me for one second. It says this. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. And having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good needs and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. He says, let us three times assuming a community is acting together. He encourages us to spur one another on. Again, a community. But then he says it flat out. Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. The writer of Hebrews knows we miss out on a vital part of worship when we give up our corporate worship as a community of Christ followers. Very quickly, another couple of passages. Ephesians 5 tells us to be filled with the Spirit and speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, where he says this, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we seek to do as we gather here together and and join our hearts and spirits together and sing to God. And then 1 Corinthians 14, again, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction or a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. When you come together, there is a hymn, word of instruction, so the church may be built up. God is honored when we join our spirits together and with one voice declare his greatness together. So throughout my life, I have played or coached a good amount of sports and been on a a good number of teams. This is just a few examples. And yes, if you look closely at the pictures, you can find Pastor Dave and I in college. Uh, But by far, the most meaningful teams of these many teams are the bottom row, the Grace Community Church softball teams that we had the opportunity to be a part of. But the but the point is, is this. Uh, I've been on some really good teams. I've been on some really bad teams. I've had some really good teammates. I've had some really bad teammates. Sometimes I've been a good teammate. Sometimes I've been not as good of a teammate, depending upon what phase of life you, you caught me in. Um, 
But in any team sport, the fundamental truth is this. We understand that no matter what, you need to be a part of the team to accomplish the purpose of the game. Similarly, if we're not engaged with the community aspect of worship, we are not fulfilling a fundamental element of what we are called to as Christians. God desires our corporate worship. God is honored by our corporate worship. And God is worthy of our corporate worship. So worship is individual, yes. And worship is also corporate, a community event. And lastly, worship is continual. I mentioned earlier that the worship we are called to is worship that extends beyond our structured times of worship, either individual or corporately, and extends into the way that we live our lives. When I was in college, uh, the man who is now president of the university was speaking in chapel, and he was sharing a story about a job that he had when he was younger that required him to be cleaning out horse stalls. And he was telling the story about that on his first day, the woman who was supervising him, taking him in and showing him how to go about cleaning these horse stalls. And uh, he found himself becoming very annoyed and frustrated by the amount of effort this woman was putting in to cleaning the horse stall and making the stall spotless and all perfectly in order for when the horse returned. And he said this story, he said, you know, I think the horse is going to be back in here soon. And, you know, he's just going to mess all this up again. And I don't really even think he's going to know you cleaned it. So is what's the point? of putting all this effort into making, you know, all this effort into cleaning up this horse stall. And her response was this, I don't clean the stall for the horse. I clean the stall for my savior. Every aspect of our lives can be an act of worship when it's done for our savior. We sang that truth this morning in the song that Rachel picked out on broken praise where we sang, let my deeds outrun my words, let my life outweigh my songs. Worship doesn't end when we stop singing or stop praying or when we put our Bibles down. And Paul got at this idea in 1 Corinthians 10 where he wrote this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is continual worship. Seeing every role we have as an opportunity to bring glory to God. And Paul wrote again more about this idea in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 where he wrote this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So what does continual worship mean? Continual worship means declaring the greatness of God to others in our words and actions. We do this by acting with honesty and integrity. We do this by loving our spouses, our children, and our family as well. We do this by doing our best as employees or students or business owners. We do this oftentimes by sacrificing what we might desire in the moment for what God might be calling us to. So worship is not a singular act that we check off our to-do list. Worship is an ongoing, day-by-day, foundational reality of the life that we're called to on an individual, corporate, and continual level. 
And to be missing any aspect of that is to be offering incomplete worship to God. And incomplete worship is not genuine worship. Because real worship is complete worship. God desires complete worship. When we hold something back from him, we are not really worshiping him. Is there an aspect of worship that perhaps you have been holding back from God? My prayer for you is that you will allow his spirit to work and draw you into worshiping him in that way moving forward. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for who you are, for the fact that you, creator of the heavens and the earth, not just know of us, not just think of us, but care for us. And Father, I pray that we would be in awe of who you are, in awe of what you have done for us, in awe of what you continue to do for us, God, and that we would seek to bring every piece of ourselves back to you on an individual level, on a community level as followers of, of, of you as we gather together, and on an ongoing, nonstop, never-ending way, Father, as we give every aspect of our lives over to you and submit them to you. In Jesus' name.